The book of Philemon, which is straddled by Titus and Hebrews, is, as you can see there, quite a small letter. Uh, When we think about an epistle, we think about a letter, uh, sometimes we're thinking of quite lengthy portions of Scripture. Uh, For example, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and even Philippians or Ephesians, uh, which have several chapters, and Hebrews, of course. But here we have just one chapter, one uh, page, if you like, or a page and a half of the Bible, but it's a very important book. Philemon can be appended to the pastoral epistles, and the pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus in particular. And the reason that this book can be appended to those is that it provides a practical lesson in pastoral theology. The pastor has certain duties. He must be a preacher and a teacher. That's why he studies. That's why he seeks to bring things out of the Word, because he's supposed to feed the people. That's what the word pastor indicates. He's to be a teacher. He's to teach the Word of God. But also in soul winning and in personal work, the preacher must learn the art of communication. He's got to be able to communicate the Word. And communication, we know, can be conducted in one of two ways, by spoken word and by written word. I know the Apostle Paul was a man who used his pen, but he also used the pulpit, if you like. He preached the Word in person. This epistle demonstrates the right approach for a servant of God to take in a delicate situation. And there are delicate situations that arise in the ministry. There are things that are not straightforward. Situations that require tact, that require wisdom, that require really a treading carefully in the dealing that the man of God has with certain situations. The subject matter here in Philemon is similar to Colossians. It's actually connected to it. And chronologically, that is the time frame, it belongs to the Ephesian and Colossian area of Scripture. It was written during Paul's first imprisonment. And so it is to be linked with these letters in the time of its writing. So when you're reading Colossians and Ephesians, you know that Philemon belongs to that same time period. Now, if you turn to Colossians chapter 4, the book of Colossians chapter 4, and verse 9, it says there, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Now, when we studied Colossians, we dealt quite a bit with Onesimus and we cross-referenced the book of Philemon. And when you're reading Colossians, this obviously is pertinent to the study of the epistle to Philemon. The setting is this. The circumstances are these. Onesimus is a young man who's traveling from Rome. He is the primary character and indeed a controversial character in the book of Philemon. He's described by Paul there, you will note, as a faithful man. 
a faithful brother. And yet, this was not always the case. He is faithful who was actually dishonest before. But also, he is now described as a beloved brother. Beloved. And yet, he was vexatious, if I could use that word, before. He gave a lot of trouble to the man of God and particularly to his master, Philemon. Onesimus, by the stage of Philemon being written, has become one of the Lord's messengers. He's become a servant of the Lord. And in chapter 4 of Colossians, you'll notice that it has at the beginning instructions for masters. And in the same verses prior to, in some of the verses prior to that, instructions for servants. And you have to understand the word servant is the word for slave. So when you read in Colossians and the chapter 3, toward the end of that chapter, verse 22, servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. It is indeed a reference to slaves and masters, because that's the kind of thing that prevailed in that day. In the Roman Empire, slavery existed. And here you have a situation where the Lord, through Paul, is instructing masters how to treat their slaves and instructing servants or slaves as to how they are to interact with their masters. As I said, when we studied Colossians, Paul didn't make any comment about slavery. This was not his remit. He was not writing Colossians in order to deal with the subject of whether slavery was a good thing or not. What Paul was doing here was setting forth the circumstances as they were and telling those who were in slavery and those who were the masters of those slaves that they were to behave in a certain way according to God's will. I do believe that slavery disappeared because of the gospel preached by men like Paul. But that's a different subject for another time. But here we have Onesimus. He's become one of the Lord's messengers. And these words about the duties of servants to their masters certainly apply to him. Now, the letter to Colossians, if you like, is the public letter. But the letter to Philemon is the private letter. It was not written to the church. It was not in that sense for public consumption. It was written to Philemon as an individual. Now, you picture in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, give unto your servants or slaves that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. This is a word that's pertinent to Philemon, because he is a master. He's a slave master. And Paul is giving this instruction to Philemon and to others in the church at Colossae. So you picture this man, this master, with this special private letter written to him in Paul's hand. And he's going to find some pertinent lessons in this address to the whole church. Because after all, as I said, Colossians is written as a public letter to the church. So all this teaching about masters and slaves, it's applying to everyone in the church. But the private letter to Philemon is going to take on real significance in the light of this teaching that's in the public letter. 
There were slaves in the New Testament. Paul talks about the bond and the free. That's what he's talking about. And we know from Colossians 4 verse 9 that Onesimus came from Colossae. Now at this time he's in Rome. He met, Ro- he met Paul in Rome, but he's not from Rome. He's from Colossae. And the same names you will note are mentioned in both Philemon and Colossians. Uh, for instance, Colossians 4 verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, that's one of the names. You go forward there to Philemon, and you will see in verse 23 of that chapter, there salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So you have these characters that are mentioned in both of these epistles, the, the public epistle and the private one. Epaphras also came from Colossae, and it's clear that he had a special interest in God's work in his own area. We'll not get into that tonight. But there are other names that are mentioned. Marcus or Mark. Yes, that's the same Mark that has his name attached to the gospel of Mark. You'll see him mentioned there in these verses. Demas, he's mentioned. For example, again there in Colossians 4 verse 14, Demas. And there's another name there, Luke. You know who Luke is, the doctor who wrote the gospel by that name. Sometimes he's called Lucas. Mark is sometimes called Marcus, but it's the same person. You have mentioned made then of Archippus. He's mentioned in Philippians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 4. And you can compare the first chapter of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 1, where it mentions Timotheus, our brother, that's Timothy. This is his full name, Timotheus, but he is normally referred to as Timothy. But then you go to Philemon and verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved. So all of these names you find in various places in the New Testament, but they're linked together in the public and private letters of Colossians and Philemon. The message bearer of Philemon, that book, is a man called Tychicus. He's the message bearer, and you'll see him in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you. And then there's a description given of him. But he also bears a letter for the neighboring city also, because in Ephesians, which we've told you before is very much linked and is similar to Colossians, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 21, it says, But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. It's really good in your Bible study to take names of people and see where they're mentioned in various parts of the Scripture. You do that with Timothy, for example. You get a, a real picture built up of the kind of man that Timothy was. And you'll see him mentioned in Corinthians. You'll see him mentioned in his epistles that are written to him. Uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. You'll see him mentioned here in Philemon. You'll see him mentioned in Colossians. But there's an outline of the book 
of Philemon that I want to leave with you. It's just a very simple outline. The first three verses of this chapter, and you won't be able to say chapter one because there is only one chapter. The first part is an introduction, as you might expect, verses one to three. These verses consist of salutation. You often find that in a letter. Somebody writes a letter to you, there's certain things that they open with, certain things that they speak about in that letter. Greetings are given. From that introduction, in this salutation to Philemon, we can presume that he's a wealthy man. Now, how do we do that? Well, because his house is big enough to accommodate the church meeting together. The church in thy house. I don't think he lived in an apartment. He lived in a large house so that many saints of God were accommodated there for their meetings. This private letter directed to Philemon is directed to a man who is described as dearly beloved and a fellow laborer in the gospel. The fact that he had slaves like Onesimus again indicates that he was wealthy. There's always people with money in those days who owned slaves. There's mention made there of Aphia in verse 2. That's a female name. And we can assume that this is Philemon's wife. And since the letter is an appeal by Paul, the importance of including his wife personally at the start of the letter will be seen. It's an appeal made to a man, and it's in the presence of his wife. His wife is going to have an undoubted influence in the inevitable decision which will follow Paul's appeal. If you have a good marriage, you will discuss just about everything with your spouse. You don't make decisions just on the hoof by yourself. You'll usually consult your wife about that. And make her think that whatever you're going to buy is her idea and then all will be well. You know that, don't you? That's the secret. Is to make her think that it's her idea. I'm joking, of course. You're allowed to smile. But seriously, you should in your marriage discuss everything together. Because it is a marriage. And you will make decisions that are important, that are vital in your Christian life, in your day-to-day life, and it's good to discuss these things and bounce these things off one another. And it's not going to be a good marriage if the man just says, this is what we're doing, whether you like it or not. That's not a good recipe for a good and a godly marriage. I'm sure Philemon was the same way. He would have discussed everything with his wife, and therefore Paul includes her in this letter. He's not saying, now Philemon, this is a letter for you, and so your wife's not allowed to read it. No, he greets her as well. His wife is going to have an influence in that inevitable decision that's going to follow the appeal made by Paul to Philemon. He will discuss it with her. What do you think of this? And no doubt, if she's a godly woman, she'll give a godly piece of advice. There's Archippus, he's mentioned there. He's the spiritual leader and the minister of the church at Colossae. He would be mentioned, obviously, Archippus. 
And he too may have a part to play in the eventual decision that's being made. And it's always a good thing to seek for many different voices when you're going to make a decision. And probably one of the best persons that you can consult is your spiritual leader or leaders. They don't always have to be involved in personal decisions that you make. But I think it's a good thing if you're thinking about something, you're praying about something, ask your pastor, what does he think about it? At least ask him to pray about it with you. So here you have the introduction. It consists of salutation, mention made of Philemon, of Aphia, his wife, and of Archippus, the spiritual leader of the church. Then from verses 4 through to 9, you have a section that's devoted to Philemon himself. This section is about the man who is the recipient of the letter. This is a word to the master. And then from verse 10 through to verse 16, maybe including verse 17, you have mention made of the one who's the center of the controversy in this chapter, Onesimus. Onesimus is not the master, he's the slave. He's the servant. He had been a runaway slave. He had left and perhaps stolen goods from his master Philemon, because Paul talks later about if he oweth thee aught, put that to my account. So if he's stolen something, if he took something that wasn't his, I'll pay you back for that. But he'd been a runaway slave. And this letter, Philemon, marks his return to his master. Philemon is all about his reconciliation to his master, but essentially it's Paul's appeal that he might be reconciled to his runaway slave. Paul is writing to Philemon to seek to soften his heart toward this young man, telling him of what has happened to him spiritually in the meantime, so that he might receive him even as Paul himself. Then you have in the fourth place, from verse 17 to verse 22 of Philemon, the section that deals with Paul himself. So Philemon, Onesimus, and the Apostle Paul are the three major personalities in the book. Philemon is a man with a decision to make. Onesimus is the man whose future is to be part of that decision. And Paul is the servant of Christ who's using all compassion and all his powers of persuasion and wisdom to cause the decision to be rightly made. So this is a book that is a book of decision. Philemon has the decision to make. Is he going to be reconciled to this runaway slave? Is he going to accept him back? Onesimus is the one whose future is at stake here. Part of this decision, actually the entire decision, affects his life moving forward. What Philemon decides is going to mean the difference in Onesimus' life moving forward. And then Paul is using wisdom, spiritual wisdom and compassion and his own powers of persuasion to cause Philemon to make the right decision. This is really the message of the book. And of course, there's one other thing, as well as the introduction, and that section about Philemon, and the section about Onesimus, and the section about Paul, and that is the closing salutation and benediction. And you'll find that in verses 23 to verse 25. 
Now, if we think about Philemon, and I'm sort of just picking some things out here of the book before we get into an actual exposition of it. Think about Philemon. He had a large house. He's a wealthy man. He had slaves. So, obviously, he's a man of means. You'll also find in verse 22, when Paul asks him to prepare him a lodging. See that? Verse 22, but with all, prepare me also a lodging. So he had room to prepare lodgings for travelers. I don't think it was an Airbnb, but it was certainly a house that could be used for the purpose of hosting visitors. You see here the spirit in which Paul wrote this letter. And there's a great lesson here in pastoral theology, actually a great lesson for all believers in their dealings with other people. Paul is very courteous in how he writes. He doesn't write in a demanding way or a haughty spirit and saying, look here, Philemon, I'm an apostle. I'm telling you this. It was not in that spirit at all. It was not only with courtesy, but with esteem, high esteem for Philemon. And I think that's the reason for associating this letter with the pastoral epistles, how pastors are to behave. Because the minister is to proceed with care and understanding and be very careful in his dealings with people. And so in these several reasons, we can see that Philemon was a man of some means. He had a sizable house. He owned slaves. He had a room for people to stay in. And then there's the spirit of Paul's approach. Paul's not writing to somebody who is not a man of some stature. Now, let's think about this. Philemon was quite possibly a convert of Paul's. I don't know that that's clearly articulated, but certainly he's the master of the house. Onesimus is the slave who lately has run away from his master. It's quite possible that Onesimus had been given a position of responsibility as a steward in the house of Philemon. He had access to pretty much everything in that home. The way it was with Joseph, you remember, in the Old Testament, when he was the steward of Potiphar. There was nothing in the house of Potiphar that Joseph didn't have access to. He trusted him. And no doubt Philemon would have trusted this man and give him a position of responsibility. And you can suggest that partly from the likelihood that he had stolen from his master and partly because of his name that was given to him which in the Greek means useful or profitable. You know, names in the Bible were very significant. And so this man's name in the Greek language literally means useful or profitable. And you'll see in Philemon that Paul used a play on words in talking to Philemon about Onesimus. You see this in verse 10 and verse 11. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. See how his name is coming to the fore? Because that's what his name means. Onesimus means profitable or useful. And Paul uses that in his appeal to Philemon. Now, where would a runaway slave be most likely to go? In that day, probably to the city of Rome. 
because it was a big metropolis, the center of the empire, with many strangers from afar. And so he could actually hide away among the multitudes of people. They're all of different ethnicities. It was a real melting pot of a city. And so Onesimus would feel, I can go there and I can just blend in. So that's probably why he went there. But while he was in Rome, think about the providence of God. A lot of big doors swing on small hinges. While he's in Rome, Onesimus encounters Paul. Now we're not told how that happened. But we do know that Paul was in prison. And because of Paul's connection with Philemon, they were known to each other already. And no doubt, Onesimus would have run across the Apostle Paul. He would have seen him from time to time. Therefore, when he was in Rome, for some reason, we might say by accident, which we know there are no accidents, he met Paul, or perhaps he actually sought him out. Maybe he got in trouble. Maybe he felt that he needed to talk to somebody because of his situation being perilous. So he would, he would search out Paul. But however it happened, the slave could recognize Paul because his master had been most likely saved through him. It's most probable that Philemon had come to Christ through the ministry of Paul. And so if he did seek out Paul, it would have been with a troubled conscience. Of that I have no doubt. Onesimus feared that his sins were going to find him out, at which point his master's vengeance would overtake him. Philemon would find a way of getting in touch with him and making him pay for his sins and his crimes. So what does he do? His conscience finds peace when Paul applied the balm of the gospel to his conscience. That's how Paul dealt with him. He tells us here, I beseech thee, I'm asking you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Verse 10. He got saved when I was in prison. Somehow, some way, Paul had the opportunity to speak to this young runaway slave and told him about the gospel. But then there's something that has to happen beyond that. Paul couldn't say, well, now that you're saved, Onesimus, you're not a slave any longer. Because the Bible says you're neither bond nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. So go your merry way and just seek to eke out an existence somewhere. Don't bother about Philemon and what you've done there. That's all under the blood. But that's not what Paul said. That's not what he said. Paul knew that he had a duty. There was an, a, a duty incumbent upon him and Onesimus to get him back to Philemon at Colossae and be reconciled to his master. There was to be restitution made. And let me tell you this, if you were a bank robber and you robbed a bank of a massive amount of money and you didn't get caught for it, but you got saved, do you think it would be right for you to say then, oh well, I'm saved now, it's all under the blood. Well, just forget about all that. No, that would not be right. The thing for you to do as a Christian would be to turn yourself in. 
and to seek to make restitution for that which you had done, whether it be by going to prison or paying a fine or whatever it may be. I knew a man that I used to preach in the open air with in, in the city of Edinburgh in Scotland, and that was his situation. He worked for a company, he had access to a lot of funds, and he embezzled hundreds of thousands of British pounds. You know what he did when he got saved? He went to his company and confessed to everything he had done. He ended up going to jail for a period of time. But he served the Lord there and then he got out of jail and was still serving the Lord. See, people have weird notions about forgiveness. Oh, I did this in my old life, but the Lord knows all about that. That's all done with now, so I'll just consign that to the garbage bin of history. No, not necessarily. Onesimus and Paul knew that they needed to do something to get this matter sorted out. That was their duty before God. So what needed to happen? Onesimus had a duty to make restitution with his master. First of all, go back and see him, admit his fault, and own up to whatever it was that he did in spite of the consequences. And there may well have been consequences. He could have been turned over to the authorities and prosecuted, however things happened in that day. But he was willing for that. But in order to help the process, Paul sits down and writes a letter of appeal to the master Philemon, endeavoring to obtain a peaceable response from Philemon. From Philemon. And of course, he argues this way. He says, now look, Onesimus has done wrong. He ran away. We know this. He came and sought me out. When he sought me out, he got saved. And now he wants to make things right with you. So I'm asking you, as your friend and as an apostle, to receive him. Take him back. And to take him back, not just as someone who is my friend. And certainly I don't want you to take him back just as a slave. Verse 16 not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. This is the appeal of Paul. He's asking Philemon to forgive this young man, to make peace with him. But you'll notice in Paul's appeal that he was very cautious in writing. Paul uses great wisdom here. He records his thanksgiving for his association with Philemon. He's thanking the Lord for this man, that he's his friend. Look at verse 4. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers. That's how Paul begins his letter. He doesn't start out talking about Onesimus, doesn't start talking about the circumstances. He starts out by assuring Philemon, brother, I pray for you all the time. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. And he speaks there in the following verses about the great qualities that Philemon has spiritually. So here's an appeal that begins in this verse number four. And what he's really saying is this, every time I think of you, Philemon, I thank God in prayer for you. 
That's a good way to get on his right side, isn't it? That's a good way to start out an appeal. And you will notice that his love and faith, Philemon's love and faith, are among his excellencies. They're mentioned in verse 5. And the love that he has is directed toward Christ and to all the saints. Toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all saints. Philemon is a godly man. And Paul's thanksgiving takes in Philemon's love for the Lord and for all the saints. He mentions that. I think it's interesting that Paul has an up-to-date knowledge of Philemon. He's still hearing about Philemon's excellencies. And Paul lists this man's outstanding qualities first. You know what he's doing here? He's disarming Philemon. He's taking the cudgel out of his hand. He's appealing to his good graces in order they might be able to then speak about being reconciled to Onesimus. He's disarming him. Now notice in verse 6, Paul's prayer is one of thanksgiving, but it also consists of a request that the communication of his faith would become effectual. He wants God to use him. And here Philemon is made to recognize that all his spiritual qualities are from God. If there's any ounce of spirituality in you, man or woman, it's from God. Didn't come from yourself. It's by Christ Jesus. It's not of yourself. These great qualities that Philemon had were from the Lord's hand. And Paul desires that Philemon's witness to his love and faith may be so established as to be a blessing to others. He wants other people to see it. And we learn from that that all that God gives us is to be used and is to be communicated. And it could be that Philemon is being made to demonstrate his love by receiving back and forgiving Onesimus. That's what he meant by his love becoming effectual. See, you look at that situation. Philemon has been wronged. Onesimus has probably robbed him, ran away with the ill-gotten goods. And so Philemon could quite easily argue this way, I'm not receiving him back, that rascal. I want nothing to do with him. Once bitten, twice shy, I want no more to do with him. But I want him punished. I want him punished for what he did. He could have taken that line. He could have said that. But Paul is appealing to him. And Paul mentions the joy and consolation that he felt in the love that Philemon had because he refreshed God's people. Again, I mentioned earlier in the Bible reading that idiom, bowels, when he talked about refreshing the bowels of God's people. It refers to the innermost feelings and passions of those concerned. And so verse 7 here, where Paul writes, For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. He's commending, he's commending Philemon, and how that his service for the Lord stirs God's people to the depths of their being. He was an encourager. The bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. This is the kind of man you are. So he's using all of this as an appeal leading up to the conclusion, which is, I want you to take Onesimus back. 
I want you to treat him as a brother and not just as a servant. Now, there's something special here for us to note, something important. In verse 8 and verse 9, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. This part of Paul's appeal is to his own weakness and his own frailty as an old man. And basically, we could parse these words in this way. Look, Philemon, I'm begging you as an old man to do this. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm suffering imprisonment for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul is voluntarily here abdicating his authority as an apostle that he could have used. He could have said, I'm an apostle and I'm telling you this is what you're to do. He didn't do that. But he preferred instead to use a humble appeal, relying on his close and tender friendship with Philemon than on his spiritual superiority as an apostle. That shows great wisdom. Tremendous wisdom. That's why it's called a companion book in the pastoral epistles. Paul doesn't command. He's not throwing his weight around. He beseeches. He uses that word, I rather beseech thee. And Paul reminds Philemon of his, his state at present. I'm Paul the aged, and I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. We're going to be dealing with further things in this epistle as we expound it more fully. I'm just kind of taking an overview at the moment. But the second section of this epistle, this chapter, is about Onesimus. Only about halfway through the letter does the name of Onesimus appear. Alongside his name is the information that's given twice by Paul that Onesimus has come to know the Lord. Paul brings this information in at this point. He's described as my son, and he's described, secondly, as whom I have begotten in my bonds. He's my son. So he's elevating this young man to higher ground than someone who is saved or born again. He's not spoken of as a slave or an outcast, but as a son. Paul was obviously stating his own involvement in winning this man to Christ. But by referring to him in this way, he's making it difficult for Philemon to reject Onesimus or fail to forgive him. Why? Because he's coming home as Paul's own son. That's great wisdom that Paul is using here. Paul says he's my son in the gospel. So how can Philemon look at this young man coming back and, and treat him any other way but as Paul's son? Whom I have begotten in my bonds. Paul has as a prisoner, even in Rome there, helped this man to Christ. Sometimes we wonder why the Lord allows certain things to happen in our lives. You get sick. You have to go into hospital. And there you are. And you're feeling bad. And you're feeling sore, perhaps. And there's somebody beside you in the room. Or there's a doctor or a nurse that attends to you. 
And God uses you to speak to them about Christ. And that would never have happened if you had not been in hospital. If you had not gotten sick, you would have never had the opportunity, perhaps, to ever talk to that person. You can actually talk about this in reverse, because our good brother Chris Killen, who works in the realm of those that are addicted, he has that ministry. You know how Chris got saved? He was in hospital because he overdosed with drugs. And while he was there, a a specialist, a doctor, witnessed to him about his need of Christ. And as a result of speaking to him there in the hospital, Chris was saved. You wonder why bad things happen in your life? The Lord gives opportunities that would not, not otherwise be given were it not for those things in his providence. When my mom was in a hospice dying of cancer, on her locker to the side said a little pile of gospel tracts. And everybody that came in, I mean everybody, nurses, doctors, friends, they got a gospel tract. That wouldn't have happened if she hadn't have been in that physical situation. And so we should be looking for the good that may come out of a situation that for us looks really negative. Now, we see that Paul, as a prisoner, and it wouldn't have been in a prison like we have today in our country, where it's like a motel. This would have been a really bad situation he was in. Remember how there in Philippi, his feet were held fast in the stalks. He and Silas were in a dungeon. And it was a dark dungeon because whenever the jailer came in, he called for a light. So there they are in this filthy, dark, probably damp, rat-infested, perhaps, dungeon. Horrible places those prisons were. And what are they doing? They're rejoicing. They're singing God's praises. And in that place, God uses them to win a man who's an ungodly man to Christ, and his whole family gets saved. You talk about good being brought out of that which is negative or evil. That's how God works. Now, when we see this talk about Onesimus, the qualities of Philemon are first given, his faith and his love communicated, his ability to refresh the saints, and then Paul beseeches him to show mercy and loving kindness. But Paul's reference to prison life, he uses the word bonds, makes us to think of what I just said. He was in a horrible situation. Paul frequently spoke of the prison in this letter. And Philemon is being made to see how he can actually encourage an old man like Paul, who's a prisoner, by granting this sincere, heartfelt request. In verse 13, he said, Whom I would have retained with me, I would have kept this young man, Onesimus, with me, that in thy stead, instead of you, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. I could have had him here staying with me and, and alleviating my suffering in the prison. Because in those days, people were allowed to come and go and give stuff to prisoners if that's how they felt. Philemon is being made to see here how he can encourage Paul by granting this petition. And I want to say this about verses 11 and 12, about the past and the present. He talks about Onesimus, verse 11, which in time 
past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Every Christian can identify with that in time past, but now. Do you ever read Ephesians chapter 2 and what it says about what we did in time past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. There's the past, in time past, and here's the present. There's been a great change. Let me mention to you that in Bible times, slaves were often looked upon as worthless persons. In fact, their humanity was never uppermost in the minds of masters. They were things to be used. And if Onesimus had been useful in the past, he has ruined all of that by running away and by stealing. But Paul plainly confesses that wrong was done. That's why he said, which in time past was to thee unprofitable. I admit that, verse 11. I admit it. He was unprofitable. He didn't live up to his name. It was a problem. Wrong was done. But now in Christ Jesus, he has proved himself to be profitable. He's already done that. Paul now sees evidence of the change. And that's what we need to look for in people who profess to be saved. A change. There's so many today who make professions and their lives after the profession is no different to what it was before they made the profession. Are they saved? See, when God saves you, he changes you. It changes your attitude to sin and to the world, to wickedness. Things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my heart to Jesus. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love far more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened to me since I gave my life to him. That's the truth. The past and the present. Now observe that Paul includes himself at this point, which was profitable to thee and to me. Paul's using that as well as a lever. Yes, Onesimus was profitable to you, Philemon, but he was also profitable to me. And so Philemon, when he's making this decision whether to receive him back or not, he's going to have to consider this man's usefulness to God's servant as well as himself. And earlier, Paul asked him to take him back as his own son, not as a servant, not as a slave, but as his son. And now he strengthens his appeal by mentioning Onesimus with himself. And Paul means here, if you accept him, it's just like accepting me. Now think about that. And we read about his value to Paul, verse 13. Paul's telling him here, look, I I would have kept him with me. That instead of having you to do it, it he could minister to me in the bonds of the gospel. He was valuable to Paul. Paul would gladly have kept him in Rome to continue ministering to him in prison. And Philemon might have thought that he could have worked for God by ministering to Paul if he himself had been in Rome. Philemon would have liked to have done that. But Paul now tells him, Onesimus is doing this. And he's really touching a chord in Philemon's heart by saying that this service Onesimus rendered should be counted as his. 
And therefore he said, it is of value to me in thy stead. Philemon, I'm looking upon the service that Onesimus has done for me as being done by you. So he's using all this as a tender appeal to the Apostle Paul. And just in closing, Paul shows that there's an obligation upon himself to send the slave back. Paul knew he had to send him back. With Philemon's permission, he would have gladly kept him at Rome. He would have gladly done that. But he's willing to send him back. And in verse 15, we learn that on his return, Onesimus was going to be coming back for good. He wasn't going to be running away again. He wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. Paul's making it clear. Look, he was only away temporarily. His future service is going to be continuous. Verse 15, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. He's not going to do the same thing again. Back at Colossae, this unfaithful man is going to become faithful. This changeable man will become steadfast forever because he only departed for a season. And it's wonderful when you see someone who has gotten away from the Lord for a season. Perhaps they've backslidden, they've gone somewhat again back into the world. But God has touched their hearts. They've been restored to the Lord. They've come back and they're not going away again. That's a great thing when the Lord deals with a backslider in that way. He's merciful. He's gracious. And back at Colossae, the unfaithful man is going to become faithful. And Paul is saying to Philemon, look, I want you to treat this runaway slave no longer as a slave. When he returns, I want you to treat him as a brother beloved. He's a brother in the Lord. That's how you're to receive him. He's a Christian. He's valuable to me. And Paul elevates him in these ways. He says, he's my own son. I want you to receive him as my own heart and soul. He's a brother beloved, especially to me. This epistle is really an epistle that deals with God's mercy. I know the appeal is to the mercy of a Christian. The appeal is made to the heart of a believer that he will behave in a certain way. But there's an illustration here of God's goodness to us. When you come to the Lord with all your sin, he will receive you. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I often think if I were God, how would I treat people who had treated me so badly? Would I be willing to take them back immediately, to throw my arms around them and to say to them, look, the past is forgiven and forgotten. We move forward. That's how we should be. But that's how God is. He's gracious. He's merciful. He will receive the penitent one. And so may the Lord encourage us to act wisely when we're in situations where someone's appealing to us, not appealing to the better part of your nature because we don't have that, but appealing to the grace of God in us that we might behave in a certain way, in a certain situation. And I think we can conclude, as we'll find out later, that Philemon indeed responded well to the appeal of Paul. May the Lord bless his word to us, and as we work through this epistle,
in a more full way, and the Lord teaches the lessons that he wants us to learn.